is seductive. She is passionate. She is Christine. A 1958 Plymouth Fury with a taste for blood. Nothing you can do can stop her. Because how do you kill something that can't possibly be alive? Christine. Body by Plymouth. Soul by Satan. Rated R. Watch out for her soon at a theater near you. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Pod and the Pendulum, your horror movie podcast that covers every single horror movie franchise, one movie and one episode at a time. I'm your uh, host, Mike Snoonian, joined once again by my co-host, Jerry Smith. Jerry, how are you doing tonight? I am doing so well. We are recording right before the 4th of July, which is going to uh-huh. be... Um, pretty sweet nice little long weekend and because of the long weekend and the holiday um the folks that we had planned on recording with tonight were not able to join us and we had a decision to make we originally were going to do a little mini episode with a um another person who thought it was next week and we're like well we could either a record on our own the same movie but we were really excited about the guests we have b not record or c we're like you know let's just do a one-off so we threw a little poll out there on Twitter. Um, Jerry had the great idea of, like, let's do something by John Carpenter. So we're going to do one of John Carpenter's, like, one-off movies. Uh, and, Jerry, do you want to let him know what one? Uh, yeah, we posted four different choices, and it was interesting to have so many people uh, vote. And it, it seemed like it was, like, the battle of either Christine or Prince of Darkness. Like, I, I seriously thought that people were going to, like, get into fisticuffs about it. And I, I would have been excited about either one. I mean, Prince of Darkness is my it's second awesome. favorite Carpenter. Mm-hmm. It's my second favorite Carpenter movie ever. Uh, but the winner was Christine, which is another movie that actually has very special meaning to me as a kid that grew up reading Stephen King novels. So I am so excited to do this episode. So let's jump right in because we have a limited amount of time tonight. And it's funny because I think you and I are the same. Like I think I read my first stephen king book when i was like eight or nine years old like our public library just it gave no shits and let me check out cujo when i was about eight or nine um and i think i've read everything from his 70s and 80s output except for christine really that's crazy yeah for me uh for me i came across stephen king as a kid i mean fourth grade uh, my, my dad took me to, like, the equivalent of what was kind of like the 99-cent store back in the 80s, and I found a hardback of Eyes of the Dragon, which is, you know, an early Stephen King novel, not very popular. And I, I just, I think I read it in two days as a fourth grader, and I it he just became my favorite author, and I just, I, that's all I wanted. I had zero friends growing up, so, like, I would just, you know, Dad, take me to the bookstore, take me to the bookstore, and I'd get every Stephen King one, bring it to fourth grade, distribute it. All throughout the kids, I got sent to the principal's office for <laughs> giving kids Stephen King novels. I did three book reports just on it that same year. I read it three times in fourth grade, which is anyone that's read it, that's not a short book. No, you know. And Christine was one of the first ones I read, and I, I identified with the character of Arnie so much. And I think most people that are that got into horror, like at some point in their lives, probably did i mean identify with arnie you know he's he's the outcast he's a lot of us and you know unfortunately there are people that once they get popularity and once they get a lot of things they kind of lose touch of what made them special about being an outcast you know like i love christine 
Yeah, I in, I watched it today for the first time, John Carpenter's Christine. I had seen like bits and pieces of it, and I kind of had a feeling like, all right, I think the poll's going to go this way. So I started my watch a little bit early, and mm-hmm. I was blown away with how fantastic this movie was. Like I had never seen it. Um, you know, I always. What's crazy about that? It is such a fantastic movie, too. It really is. And it, it doesn't get uh, talked about when it comes to Carpenter's kind of filmography as much as, you know, the Halloween, the things, and all that stuff. But what's interesting is Carpenter only took this movie as a job. Yeah, because that's the quote. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like, well-known. He was not passionate about this movie. You know, he wanted to make Firestarter, and what's even crazier, he wanted to make The Ninja. Have you read the novel of The Ninja? I've never read the novel of oh, The Oh my god, man. The Ninja is this book. I mean, I, I read it so many times, just because like, I was super into like Japanese culture growing up, too. Mm-hmm. It's basically about this guy who's raised by this kind of British uh, you know, uh, British Asian family. Uh, he gets into martial arts, and kind of like the way of The Ninja, and he, he exceeds at it. He's so good, and he's such a good person. And his cousin is the opposite. And they get this long feud. It's like the yin and yang. And it was it, it's one of the most epic books around. And that's what Carpenter wanted to do. And that just fell through so many times. He needed a job, so he's like, you know what? Okay, Christine. And it's, it's interesting that he kind of looked down at it at the time, but it turned out, in my opinion, one of his best movies. Well, it's funny because it doesn't have a lot of those Carpenter flourishes mm-hmm. until the back half of the movie. And what it is before that is a really capable, really moving and engaging kind of like coming of age story. Oh, um, very much it's, so. So it's like really interesting to see Carpenter kind of like especially coming off the thing. And that's why he took this movie. Like he's very upfront. Like you said, the thing did so poorly at the box office and critically, he's like, I need a hit, you know, I need work right now. He wanted to get, and good for him. Like a lot of people might've like kind of crawled under a rock or taken some time off. He kind of got right back out there and said, what's just lined up another work at that point to start on. What's, what's interesting about that is the carpenter, the John Carpenter that did, Christine. At that point of his career, I mean, people liked him. You know, his movies weren't doing exceptionally well as far as, you know, the thing and stuff. But he was, you know, people knew him, but he mm-hmm. wasn't the John Carpenter that he is now. Right. I mean, these days, you know, the war didn't do so well, so John Carpenter basically says, fuck it, and he wants to play basketball and play video games, you know? Mm-hmm. But back in the 80s, like you said, he needed a hit. He needed something to keep, uh, you know, keep directing and stuff. And I'm, dude, I mean, I'm so glad that he chose Christine, because like I said, I mean, it's brilliant. And, and like and like you just said, it is such a good coming-of-age movie. Uh, and it only gets in that kind of, like, super Carpenter, you know, John Carpenter, Alan Howard kind of score-heavy vibe towards, you know, the second half of it. Right. In that second half, you see those flares. You see the pan- the what the Panaglide camera that he used for Halloween gets mm-hmm. brought out in full force. And Christine very much becomes like another take on Michael Myers through in the second half. Like this very steady, unyielding presence that's going to be just unrelenting and not give up um, when it has its eyes locked on something. And it becomes like genuinely scary for some of the bits overall. I really oh. loved it. Oh, totally. And one thing that I've always loved about the movie is a lot of people just kind of see it for, you know, what it is on the surface. But Christine, to me, like, I think it's a it's a, a, 
it's layered in ways that I, I think maybe sometimes people don't read into as much. You know, Arnie's attraction to the, the car isn't so much that he just wants to, you know, I want a cool, badass car. It's that Arnie, the character of Arnie, he doesn't identify with anyone. I mean, his right. parents his parents hate him. He hates his parents. His only friend is basically somebody that's really popular. You know, so he, he even doesn't feel that close to his best friend because right. they're not the same kind of person. And the he, only person that he feels close to is that car. It's like his girlfriend. It is. And it's it's part of that is that pride from like he took like he says when he bought when he buys christine he's like well you know i think it's the only thing i've ever seen that's like uglier than i am but then he builds that thing back up from scratch and he gets it going and there's that pride in your craftsmanship and in your work uh and what you've done and what you've been able to do with your own hands at that point and when others don't appreciate that or want to take it away from you, you can understand why Arnie would kind of dig in his heels at that point. And it's like, no, this is mine. Like, this is a part of me at this point. And what you're saying is when you're rejecting Christine, you're actually rejecting who I am. And it was mm-hmm. Arnie for the first time figuring out, like, he figured out who he was. And as soon as he showed that person, he was rejected. That and... Uh... Every time I watch Christine, and I might be the only person to have ever said this, if I'm not, then props to whoever else did. But what Christine always reminds me of is Charles Bukowski. Mm-hmm. Because there's that famous quote, you know, find what you love and let it kill you. Yes. And I think of it every single time that I watch Christine. Because how many of us get so invested in something and we put so much of ourselves in it that, I mean, you know, years down the road, maybe we lose touch with what made us love that thing. You know, and we kind of lose touch of ourselves. And I think Christine's a good way to show that. And I think, I mean, not just Carpenter's direction, which is brilliant, and the score that he did of Alan Howard, I think his choice in casting is just astonishing. I mean, Keith Gordon, I watched Jaws 2 last night because, I mean, I just love that movie. But Mm -hmm. Keith Gordon, I think, is one of the most underrated actors around. Like, he is so good in everything that he did before becoming, you know, a really exceptional director. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was really perfectly cast in this movie. And he would go on to sort of direct. I think the other thing I really recognize him from, too, is Back to School with Rodney Dangerfield, where he yeah, plays yeah. the son uh, there. Yeah, Back to uh, School, uh, Jaws 2, uh, The Legend of Billy Jean, which is a really mm-hmm. fun uh, no, a, a Dress to Kill. I mean, God, that Brian De Palma movie. He's so good in that, too. So but, we, it's it's okay. funny you mentioned De Palma I was because we were talking about Stephen King. And I know we're in the middle of a Stephen King renaissance right now. Um, yeah. And there was a long stretch of time where it's like new Stephen King ad- adaptation. And you're like, oh, this is going to be terrible. How are you going to ruin? How are you going to ruin this work? But when you look at his early movies and you look at who was making you have John Carpenter making Christine. David Cronenberg making The Dead Zone, yeah. De Palma making Carrie, Toby Hooper making Salem's Lot as a miniseries, and Stanley fucking Kubrick making The yeah. Shining. You have a half dozen of some of like the greatest directors in genre film or just film period, um, all clamoring for this work. It's just incredible to see, to look back at who well, was adapting these films. Well, you know what's interesting to me, and I don't mean this as an insult whatsoever because I'm actually a really big fan of Nick Garris. But for mm-hmm. the longest time, like as a teenager and early adult, every time a Stephen King adaption was announced, I'd be like, okay, what book is Mick Garris adapting this, yeah. this month? You know, like mm-hmm. it was that was every TV movie was Mick Garris doing this. 
Mm-hmm. And then what, the, what I think, in my opinion, led to this great Stephen King renaissance is how passionate uh, Frank Darabont was. Mm-hmm. I mean, Frank Darabont, I mean, The Green Mile, Shawshank Redemption, The Mist, you know, like these are quality. And I'm not saying Nick Garrison's films aren't quality. I just mean like as far as like big theatrical movies. I mean, these well, were movies that, that could have been nominated for Oscars, you know? Yeah, and Garris was very limited by scope. Yes. Um, you you have a form at that time when Garris is making these movies, you're not shooting in widescreen, you're shooting in pan and scan um, for television at that point. You're limited by budget and you're limited in the story beats you can do because every 12 minutes you have to hit a commercial break. Yeah. So whatever pacing you want to do at that point is going to immediately get thrown off. So, you know, I think he did a, with the work he did and even his adaption of The Shining, which I'm sure. We're going to cover at some point when we do yeah. like the shining the shining and dr sleep um oh, i know at some point <laughs> all right um i'm sure we're going to get to that at some point but I let's feel, talk I, before we get into it i feel mm-hmm. like this episode any mention of stephen king like our listeners are going to hear like both of us just giggle like little kids yeah. <laughs> well it's hard not to i mean it's definitely he's if you're a <laughs> horror fan you love stephen king yeah, and Christine, I mean, you get a Stephen King book adapted by John fucking Carpenter. Mm-hmm. Like, how could you not just be ecstatic even talking about it? Like, I'm smiling and turning red yeah. talking about this movie right now. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about, our, you know, let's talk about Dennis a little bit. What yeah. struck me when I'm watching this movie, and I don't know if anyone's ever brought this up, I kind of felt like Dennis was maybe into arnie maybe had a crush on him maybe was struggling with his own sexuality a bit because you know dennis is supposed to be like your most popular kid in school top jock in school he's portrayed as like very sensitive he completely ignores the um young woman who is lusting after him earlier in the film um and there's that moment when he approaches uh, Lee in the library and this other girl it like looks up thinks he's coming for her and when she realizes he's going to walk by him she gets this look on her face like oh god like she's embarrassed um, yeah. but like the the affection that Arnie shows for I'm uh, sorry that um, Dennis shows for Arnie seems to go above and beyond just like a good friend type of relationship well, it's, there, there are two different like I think approaches that you could kind of get on board with the first one is maybe, I mean, we've all been in that situation, I know I have, where there are kids at school that nobody likes, mm-hmm. and you almost feel protective over them. You know what I mean? Like, I remember in uh, fifth grade, there was this really sweet girl that came to my school, and she had cerebral palsy. And there wasn't a, I don't remember her name because it's been so long, but there, there was nobody that wanted to hang out with this girl. They would make fun of her for the way she walked and everything. And I felt like it was my job. Not like, not like I, you know, it was my duty to be her friend. I wanted to be her friend, but I also felt like it was my job to kind of be protective. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And there's that. But at the same time, like, I also agree with you a hundred and like a hundred percent. Dennis is the one, uh, I mean, more than Alexander Paul's character, Dennis, the character of Dennis is the one so defeated by Arnie kind of transforming into this really negative person. Mm -hmm. He's the one that's heartbroken, you know? She's just getting, you know, she's just getting dissed by another guy that ends up being a douchebag. Whereas right. Dennis, Dennis, I mean, he goes to visit, or Arnie comes to visit in, in the hospital, you know, and Arnie just kind of like has like a whatever attitude. And if you look, Dennis is just so broken 
by right. the fact that Arnie just kind of doesn't care. Like, right. I, I, I think, uh, like, I agree with you 100%. And I, I think that might have been something that is more uh, prevalent in the Carpenter film because the book, the book, I mean, the character of Dennis and Lee, they end up together for a while and they end up splitting up, like, you know, years down the road and stuff. And they don't really get into that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that subtext is definitely there. Yeah, I, I, it's something that really sprung out um, because Dennis is like in the kitchen um, having a powwow with Arnie's parents when he buys the car. Like the, there's just such genuine concern there and it goes above and beyond just kind of having your friends back at that point. And like you said, when Arnie goes to visit him in those two hospital scenes, like it's almost like when you're a little kid and you get dragged to see like some aunt that on your mom's side of the family twice removed and you like have to go visit her and like eat you know like the paper button candy and hard candy from a dish and you're like i don't want to be here right now like that's the look that arnie has when he's in those hospital seats like he could give no shits for his friend anymore and he arnie just talks about himself the entire time Mm -hmm. and the the scene that that you mentioned where dennis is talking to arnie's parents what it reminded me of i'm I'm really close with my wife's family and Mm -hmm. anytime that i'm hanging out with her dad or you know talking about music or something with her dad He's always, like, voicing his frustrations with my wife to me, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's what that scene reminded me of, you know? Like, like yeah. almost like they were confiding in, you know, like, Arnie's partner more than his friend. Yeah. And, like, the mom, like, you know, when he's like, well, I tried not to. Well, did you really try? And it's like, <laughs> mom, like, this is – it's not Dennis's responsibility to right? raise your son. He's um, supposed to throw footballs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so like the and the parents in this movie, like one thing that really jumped out at me, the scene where basically Arnie calls tells his mother to fuck off and like yeah. leaves and the dad puts his hands to him and Arnie oh, hits him boy. back. Um I took that, it was like that was not the first time that Arnie's dad had ever like tried to hit him. Oh no, totally. I, I get that impression as well. And I can't it's been so long since I've read the book. I, I probably a good twenty, twenty five years. But I don't remember. I don't remember if that's in the book. Kind of, mm. you know, backstory to that. But very much so. I feel like that's why the dad's so shocked when Arnie steps back up to him because this is a different Arnie. It's a different Arnie than what we yeah. saw at the very beginning. And there was that kind of fractured relationship at the beginning. But by the time that Arnie steps up to him, that there's such a level of genuine shock. Kind of like that dad was. Yes, and that dad was kind of the alpha male of the situation. The mom's mm. kind of the bastard one that just takes whatever the boys are going to do, mm-hmm. you know, because that, that's what a good wife does, which I'm obviously being sarcastic. Yes. Uh, you know, I, I think that too. I, I think it's it's the moment where the dad's like, holy shit, I, I've lost power now. I'm not the alpha male anymore. And I think one of the most shocking things when I was watching this movie was for that first act, that almost those first two acts of the movie, Arnie is such a sweet kid. Like you really feel for him, you really like him. Um, I think the 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 performance it's just so genuine and so wonderful by Keith Gordon that, mm-hmm. and I kind of like that you didn't see this gradual decline in Arnie. You basically see him from the moment he gets the car up and running, he's yeah. a dick, and it's oh, so shocking. Okay. Well, he becomes. What's crazy is I, I rewatched it a couple of weeks ago with my kids because my kids are like huge fans of mm-hmm. uh, the movie in general. And there was that new still book that came out at Best Buy. So obviously I had to go get it. There's uh, a new one now? 
a new still book release, a Blu-ray release of Christine. Oh, okay. Like a new 4K. Yeah, it's, it just looks great. So I wanted to show it to my kids. And they even pointed it out that, like, by the end of the movie, Arnie is just as bad as the bullies messing with him. Yeah. Like, it's, it's, and it's a weird comparison, but it's kind of like Breaking Bad in the sense that, the, that Breaking Bad started out with a protagonist who, by the end of the show, became the show's antagonist. You know, yeah. he became a villain. And that's what Arnie does throughout this movie. And it's not gradual. It's the moment he finds that kindred spirit in Christine that he's just like, you know what? Fuck everybody. Right. And it, it's it's very fast. Like you said, it's not this gradual thing. Right. And he even says to Dennis in that scene with her, when he's racing down the highway, like, find someone that's going to love you, find someone that's going to, like, trust you and put their faith in you. And Dennis is like, oh, that's how you feel about Lee? He's like, no, that's how I feel about Christine, my car. Like, nobody else matters to Arnie at that point. And I thought that was really telling that he was that ostracized from other people, even yeah. the people that, you know, cared about him. Um, well, that and... and uh... What makes the film so great is in the book it was different. In the book, the car was possessed by the spirit of uh, of a killer kind of mm-hmm. thing. You know, like it was. It goes into the backstory and this stuff. In the in the movie, it's very much just the car just does it on its own. It just comes alive. You know, it doesn't give an explanation. So while while on the surface the car is doing these things because of the car's love for Arnie, but I never saw it that way. I saw it as the car is an extension of what Arnie wants. I feel mm-hmm. like Arnie is the one who's doing the stuff through the car. I mm-hmm. don't blame it on the car. I blame it on Arnie and his desire to get back at every single person. Sure. Even, even Dennis. Arnie is so, in my opinion, Arnie is, he resents the fact that Dennis is popular. Mm-hmm. He resents the fact and he thinks, and like I said, this is just my opinion, but I think Arnie feels angry that he, in his opinion, Dennis is his friend because he feels sorry for him, even if that's yeah. not the case. Yeah, I think there's points where Dennis or Arnie, you can see him look at Dennis and say, come on, you're being my friend out of pity. It's not that you really like me at this point. You know, it's and that's why, like, when Arnie starts to get more popular, he starts to blow Dennis off, almost like he's relieving Dennis of his duty to be his friend at that point. Like, he never fully trusts that Dennis wants to be his friend. Well, that's why Arnie is so just, like, like full of just bragging once he gets kind of more arrogant and Christine and stuff. Mm-hmm. He almost, like, he almost rubs it in Dennis's face that Lee likes him. You know, he mm-hmm. rubs it in his face that, you know, he could take care of himself now. Almost yeah. like he's getting satisfaction from making Dennis feel like the one who's a loser. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know what? Even though he's doing that, like, that's – his insecurities are still there the whole time. Yeah, yeah. Like, they never go away. And one scene I want to talk about is the drive-in scene and the Heimlich maneuver. Yeah. Um, because I don't think it's any accident like that – scene is shot very sexual uh where the gentleman who's giving lee the heimlich maneuver is pressed up against her they're both panting he at the end of the scene like she's pressed right up against him they're breathing very heavy his hands are almost running up her sides under her breasts at that point um it's one of those things where when you see that, like, there's no – and meanwhile, Arnie has just been rejected sexually by Lee. You know, he 
doesn't want to thank this person. He thinks that he's stealing his girlfriend, even though it's very clear that something is wrong in that moment. Um, he's choking. Because he's choking to death, basically. He still he can't admit that. He's like, I'm being bested by another man again. I, you know, even though I have this new car, this new popularity, this new girlfriend, it's still, I'm still not good enough. I'm still less than overall. And I think it was very intentional to kind of shoot um, that moment, like that overtly sexual. And Carpenter's not someone that usually is a very sexual filmmaker. Like his stuff doesn't have a lot of that in it. So that's what really Mm -hmm. struck me. That's also, uh, I've always thought that that scene in particular is, it was, it's always been the point of no return for Arnie. Hmm. I feel like after he's rejected by Lee and he sees that man helping Lee, but in his eyes, you know, kind of that guy's doing what he wanted to do, which is really weird for Arnie. Uh, you know, I think that's the point where he just snaps. It's like, you know what? I'm done. Like these people are going to, these people are going to go. Yeah. And he's very like through the rest of the film, like he wants to be with he he says he wants to be with Lee, but he pushes her away at every single moment. He becomes really abusive towards her. There's that. Oh, yeah. There's that um, scene in the garage when he sees Christine has been totaled. But even after that, when he calls her on the phone and she doesn't answer him right away the way he wants, he starts hurling expletives at her. It's uncomfortable. the, the scene where he, he finds Christine totaled, I mean, man, that is, that, that for me, even growing up as a kid, uh, that made me so uncomfortable because it's like, what? I thought this was the film's lead hero. Like, mm-hmm. why is he treating this, this girl? Like, I mean, he treats her like she's this absolute excrement in yeah. that scene. And it's like, even as a child, like watching this movie, I, I felt really weird. Like, like it was hard for me to sympathize for Arnie, even for a single second after that scene. Right. He really does become like the antagonist of the movie from that point on. And your perspective starts to shift on him overall. Um, what do we think of the bullies in this movie? You know, it's funny that you say that. I, I do have some opinions on the bullies. Uh, Carpenter's great with casting, but I will say... And I know everyone involved with Pod and the Pendulum and our listeners know that we love Stu Charno. Mm-hmm. But casting Stu Charno as a bully, like, that is the biggest, like, what the fuck piece of casting I've Like, Stu Charno as a bully? Right. Like, that guy should, that guy should have been Army, you know? Yeah. <laughs> that ends. I mean, uh, William Ostrander plays Buddy Repertson. Like, Man, that guy looks like he's 50 in that movie. He does. And he's, he's playing like, what, a 16-year-old, 17-year-old? Yeah. He, he, <laughs> <laughs> he looks like John Tra- – if, if John Travolta today went back to play um, Barbarino in a Welcome Back Cotter reboot, if Travolta did that today, that's what Will Ostrander would have looked like. And that's what he looked like in Christine. It's pretty well, ridiculous. So, yeah, the character of Buddy represents – I mean, he, he looks like – he looks like the Walmart version of John Travolta. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's funny to watch because it also, I mean, the way that these teenagers talk to adults in this movie, like baffles me. Like, I, I mean, I grew up in the, you know, the eighties and obviously we weren't allowed to be beat by our, our teachers, but I, I mean, there was a, there's a moment when I was in like fourth or fifth grade where this bully who was kind of like the buddy Robertson stepped up to my teacher and my teacher threw him across the desk mm-hmm. and and still had his job, you know, like 
you watch Christine and these these kids, I mean, they're pulling knives, they're hitting things, they're cussing out their teachers, they're cussing out their parents. Like these like I wanna know what universe that these kids are from. Yeah, they're just like all in. They're all in the adults business at that point. They don't give like Arnie with uh, Harry Dean Stanton's character with the cop. He's like totally mouthing off to the cop after he after he knows this kid has been murdered. And he's like treats it like it's no big deal. Like you got nothing on me, copper. Um, I am the most I am the most like vanilla boring person around. Like I don't have a criminal record. (laughs) You know, I've never been arrested. But with that being said, if a cop ever questions me about anything, even if it's, hey, did you see this dog cross the road illegally or something, I go into instant panic, you know? The idea that Arnie would just, like, tell a a cop, like, basically step up to a cop and just be a complete dick, it's like, it's weird to me. Especially, I mean, Harry Dean Stanton. I mean, that guy's, like, the epitome of cool. Yeah. Yeah, and I just love how just nonchalant he is and how that gets under Arnie's skin so easily. It's like a perfect it, little role for him. Also, I mean, what I love about not just the bullies, but kind of like the, the main cast, you know, Arnie, you know, uh, Keith Gordon, John Stockwell, all these people, is a lot of them went on to be great directors in their own right. Mm-hmm. I mean, like we said, Keith Gordon went on to direct. I mean, he directed some of my favorite episodes of Dexter. You know, mm-hmm. he's directed episodes of Legion. He did this really great film called Waking the Dead that yeah. I highly recommend if anyone hasn't seen it. John Stockwell, that plays Dennis, he went on to direct some really cool action movies. You know, like, and that, and he directed Turistas, which, I mean, I'm not a fan of it, but, I mean, that's cool, you know? Mm-hmm. But he, he the, John Stockwell went on to direct this movie, I, I think it's called In the Blood, at uh, Gina Carano, and it's a really fun action movie. But, like, mm-hmm. a lot of the people from this cast went on to be, you know, very successful, you know, in other fields themselves. But when you look at the John Carpenter, uh, like in the when people who watch football, you often hear something called the coaching tree, where you have like a really good coach, and then all his assistants kind of go off and become coaches for their own teams. When you look at the John Carpenter like directing tree overall, like people that have worked with Carpenter, what they've gone on to do, you have like Tommy Lee Wallace, uh, yeah. who went on to have like a um, you know, really good career after working with him overall. Nick Castle doing The Last Starfighter. Um, he worked with a lot of people who moved on to like bigger and better things with their career. And part of that is Carpenter being really smart and surrounding himself self with really, I mean, look at Dean Cundley shooting oh, Jurassic God, Park. Right. I mean, end of story right there. And Camp Rock. He shot right. Camp Rock. So, <laughs> so how can we forget? Um, right. But it's just like, it's a matter of like Carpenter A being smart enough to surround himself with very talented people, but also like passing things on, you know, through teaching. Uh, well, and, that or, and, uh, I mean, another cool thing about the casting of Christine, you get to see actors in roles that we didn't, we don't typically know them for. Mm-hmm. I mean, Robert Foskey, you know, is so mean in that movie. Uh, so so cruel and just mm-hmm. absolutely mean in that film but like you know at the time seeing it as a kid i was like oh i believe that guy but yep. now years later i know him from like you know miracle on home 34th alone. streets you know home alone uh you know all these these last action hero mrs doubtfire you know so it's it's fun to go back and watch christine and see these actors that you wouldn't typically mm-hmm. know you know for being these really hard abrasive characters you know being that way 
but that meanness is totally believable. And oh, yeah. as you find out his backstory, you can see where it's come from and you can almost justify it. And, you know, I just love that little moment with when he's with Dennis and he's like, you don't really know your friend nearly as well as you think you do. Like um, his, you know, Parnell basically lines up Dennis from within 30 seconds of laying eyes on him. And it's like, yep has that person completely figured out at that point. He has that. Uh-huh. He has, I'm sorry, Arnie completely figured out from the moment that he lays eyes on him. Oh, definitely. Um, so what do we think? Like one of the things I was doing a little bit of reading ahead of time on this is huh? the studios wanted a hard R on this movie. Um, they wanted it, which is really funny nowadays. When you think like how many movies are cut to get a PG 13 rating. Yeah. Um, the studio's like, fuck that. We want like, give us like, go nuts, John. We know you can do it. And Carpenter said like, man, after doing the thing, I wanted to get away from doing like really a lot of blood and a lot of guts. Yeah. But I got to do an R rating. I'm just going to have these kids like curse up a storm. Like that's yeah, how we got around that. that. that <laughs> yeah, definitely. Because the, the death scenes themselves really aren't that, you know, they're not that gory. It's they're, more like what it's more like what you don't see, mm-hmm. you know, like like there's that scene. Uh, man, I forget the character's name, but one of the bullies, you know, when Christine kind of traps him in that little yes. little alley. You know, that little yeah. little cubby thing and just smashes them. We don't see a lot of stuff there. We don't see no. a lot of stuff in general. I mean, I think the most violent death in Christine is Arnie flying out the window mm-hmm. and being kind of held on a little bit of glass. Yeah. But I, I think most of it is in that profanity, and, which is interesting. You know, it's interesting. Like, we want a hard R. Okay, I'm going to add the F word about 35 times. 35 times. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's, yeah. No, and there's but, no, no uh, nudity in the movie at all. Um and again, like it's up for like the whole movie, like Arnie and Dennis, like all the in like we gotta get laid, like I just wanna go out and have sex with somebody, and there's like barely even a whiff of it in this movie. Like the most horny scene in the movie is um the Heimlich maneuver scene. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. It's it's not a very vulgar film in general. No. Uh, like like you said, it's mostly the profanity. But another thing that I, I feel that I just really like about the film is the transformation of Arnie. Like you mm-hmm. said, it's not gradual, but at the same time, I mean, he starts off like a very sweet, you know, character. And by the end, he's very ghoulish. I mean, his eyes are dark, you know, it's sunken in. And it, it's it's almost like he's, I mean, obviously he is, but it's almost like he's not human by the end. You know, mm-hmm. he's, he seems he seems like dead. And yeah. you know, dead in the eyes, and it's it's really interesting that where at the the beginning of the film, Christine is kind of an extension of Arnie, but by the end, it's it's twisted. You know, I think Arnie is an extension of Christine by the mm-hmm. end, and I've always loved that touch about the film. Absolutely, I, I definitely agree with that. The only time you see flashes of what Arnie is going to become is that first argument with his mom in the kitchen where he puts his foot down for the first time and says, like, no, this is mine. I never ask for anything. This I'm putting my foot down. And in that moment, you're cheering for Arnie. You're like, yeah, absolutely, dude. Like, you've earned this. Like, you absolutely uh-huh. should not put up with any shit right now. But then you yeah. see how how quickly he stops being able to see anyone's point of view aside from his own. And it becomes mm-hmm. very, it becomes frightening at that point. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, another thing, like what's crazy is one of the most iconic scenes in the entire film was kind of like an afterthought, mm-hmm. you know, and it's interesting how that works in films, you know, where 
that whole like you know the rebuilding of Christine, you know, when she kind of like pops herself back together, that was kind of that was an afterthought. Yep. You know, it's been well documented that you know Carpenter wanted a little bit more after it was over. He didn't mm-hmm. feel it was that scary, you know. So he wanted these little touches that were added, and it's so cool that he thought of that because, I mean, nowadays, I mean, it's not that impressive by today's standards. I mean, you, you know, anyone could do that, but back then. You watch that scene, and it's magical to watch. You know, it is brilliant. Well, I think, too, It lo- what I appreciate is that there is this real tactile feel to it. Like, you're seeing a real object transform itself, and it, it's very impressive to watch. It's almost like, and it's funny, because the reason they went with Christine just being her own spirit and not the serial killer is Carpenter saying, well, this was already done in American Werewolf in London, where like, a dead person follows around their buddy. We don't want to mimic yeah. that again. But I looked at this transformation scene in Christine almost like an American Werewolf in London's werewolf transformation scene. Uh, it's just really impressive to watch. Um, and you're right, it definitely it, it was added after the initial shooting was done. It definitely adds a whole other layer to the movie and a whole that makes the car at that point it does make it scary because you're like, well, oh, that, shit. That and it's very sexual, like you said earlier. Arnie's love for the car, I, I think, is – it's not a platonic love. Mm-hmm. Like, Arnie is turned on by Christine yeah. hardcore. Mm-hmm. I mean, every from the way he touches the car to – I mean, just even his delivery, you know, the show me thing. Mm-hmm. Like, that car is, you know – that's his sexual desire. And it's Absolutely. really interesting, really interesting to me to see that in a Carpenter film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Carpenter's work, especially coming off the thing where it's all men, um, his work is not very sexual overall. Mm-hmm. It's very, when there is sex in it, it's usually very perfunctory. Um, you know, it's basically Tom Atkins picking up um, Jamie Lee Curtis on the side of the road for a quick roll in the hay 10 minutes after they meet, you know, that type of. That uh, type of deal overall. So asking each other if they're weird. Yes. <laughs> that or like vampires was another one that was like uh, I mean we were watching that in the theaters and I was just like, Whoa, this is a this is kinda kinky. This is interesting. Mm-hmm. Like I don't yep. really I didn't expect this from Carpenter. Yeah. That's another it's one shocking was, when like, it happens. Oh. Yeah. Um what do we think of the opening? Like, what were your, your impressions of the opening moments of the film with Christine coming oh, off the man. conveyor belt? I get so excited at that because I mean that that music. Oh God, mm-hmm. you know it, it fits it so well, and it, it it's almost boring on purpose. Yeah, you know it's just like all right, they're putting together a car, and in one little snap of the fingers, like all hell, mm-hmm. you know, all hell breaks loose. Yeah, I mean because you see alive. it coming, because you see yeah. it coming, and then it happens. It's great. So when I watched that opening scene, what struck me. <laughs> especially knowing that this was right after he did the thing is you have this like assembly line of all these cars that look the same, like just this product that's coming out. And then you have this one car that stands out from all the rest at that point. And to me, that's what Carpenter was kind of giving a middle finger at that point to Hollywood. Like, all right, here's your assembly line, all the same shit. You know, now you have my stuff and my stuff is going to be dangerous. My stuff is going to like break your fingers if you're not paying attention to what you're doing. And I really kind of that, you know, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I I don't think you are because what 
what is above every single film that John Carpenter's ever directed, with the exception of Memoirs of Invisible Man? John Carpenter's. You know? <laughs> like, that's, it's definitely a level of arrogance, but at the same time, John Carpenter, whether or not people give him credit for being so, is definitely an auteur. Yes. You know, he makes his films the way he wants it. And you see a John Carpenter movie, you know it's a John Carpenter movie. Yeah. And I, 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 I agree with you 100%. Yeah. This is an FU to the, the studios, you know, mm-hmm. that is churning out just like product after product. Even when he is doing something for just a job, he still brings his own imprint to the work overall. You know, well, it still like, has his flourishes. Even his work that, uh, I mean, isn't as big as the other ones. I mean, his episode, I mean, his Cigarette Burns episode of Masters of Horror mm-hmm. is, God, it's one of the best hours of television I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't stand, like, my how much you just detest Mandy is how I feel about Norman Reedus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not a fan. But I can, watch, okay. I can watch Cigarette Burns. Not as All a person. Day. I don't know him, but it's his film. I mean, I can watch Cigarette Burns 24-7. I love that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I haven't watched that one in years, and I think I'm due for a rewatch at All the Masters of Horror, because I remember really enjoying that one. Oh, they're great. They're great. And it's cool that they're kind of continuing on with the Nightmare Cinema. Yeah. See, I I was nervous about showing my kids Christine the first time just because how defiant Arnie is with his parents. Like, I was so scared that, you know, I would show my son Dexter that and then, like, I'd come home and go, like, fuck you, Dad. Like, you know, I was terrified of that. Well, it's like, but you could be like, well, look what happened at the end. He got thrown through a windshield. You know what? I'm going to throw you through a windshield, kid. This this is what happens when you (laughs) talk back to your parents. You get possessed by your car. I remember, this is a a side note right here. I remember I was watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and I would not let my daughter watch that quite yet. But during the scene where, like, Franklin gets gutted, I'm like, come here, I want to show you something. I'm like, this is... (laughs) This is what happens when you don't eat your vegetables, I think is the quote. <laughs> that is so, great. Yeah, you know, it's funny is I show, like my kids actually love that movie and I don't know why I showed it to them already because uh, my kids are, you know, nine and ten. Mm-hmm. But they've they've seen it for at least a few years by now. But even as super small kids, when I showed them the first time, like their first thing was like, eh, that's cool. I mean. Frank, uh, Franklin wasn't that great, anyways. And that, that, was their, that was their child, you know, childish way of saying, you know, now he was an annoying little bastard. Yeah, there you go. Um, what do you think of the end of Christine uh, when the car is crushed? It's into a little cube, and then like the oldies music starts playing, and it's just a guy. What, what I think it is, and I have a love-hate relationship with these kind of endings. I love them because it's like, oh, that's great, this little wink. You know, mm-hmm. wink to the audience. But at the same time, I also like my stories tied up. Mm-hmm. You know, it worked for Halloween because I've I'm 38 now and I've still not recovered from the first time I saw Halloween and Michael mm-hmm. was there when they took over the you know the thing. I it works for those films, but I I, I kind of wish that they wouldn't have had that little tweak at the end because I I feel like it was such a good arc of showing somebody get destroyed by what they were obsessed with mm-hmm. you know and just to have like a you know arnie's defeated and oh christine's still ticking like it's it, i feel like it's kind of a slap to the face of its audience but at the same time i mean i do love the film and you know i, I understand why it's there 
Yeah, and it's just a very subtle thing, and I think you could read it either way. It could be uh, a breeze kind of had it move just a little bit. Um, I just love it, the fact that, like, they hear this music playing, and they get really freaked out, and then it's just some schmuck with a boombox <laughs> walking by. Because I think by that point, you've expected the carry ending, you expected the Friday the 13th ending, and instead you just get a guy walking around a junkyard with, like, a 1980s-style boombox. Well, what I love, what is great about that scene is, uh, I know a lot of people didn't care for it, but I mean, I adored it. The new Pet Cemetery that, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, sorry, guys, guys, man. I loved in Pet Cemetery the new one where you think you're, you know, what's coming up, especially with the character of of Judd. You know, you've seen the first adaption, you read the book, you know what's going to happen, and it, it gets you really nervous about that. And then it doesn't happen. And you're like, okay, I could calm down again. And then it happens. And that's what the end of Christine is to me. You know, you're expecting something to happen. And like you said, it's just some dude walking with, you know, boombox. <laughs> so then after you see that, you're like, oh, okay, I'll calm him down again. And then you get, you know, the little like death rattle kind of thing, Christine. You know, is it still going? Is it, you know, is it just a breeze? I just What's don't going know. On? Yeah. yeah. And speaking of music, I love the musical selections they use here because they're very coded. They're very deliberate. They cue you in to what's going on in that scene, and they're very appropriate for that scene. Um, so I really love the use of the oldies music in there and the specific choices they make with their music well, in this not, movie. Not just the oldies music. I mean, all around, it's just a great soundtrack and mm-hmm. score. And it also shows that, I mean, Carpenter knows his music, you know? Obviously, he knows about composing music, but he also has a love, I think, for music in general, you know? Because how can someone front the Coupe de Ville's and not love good music, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, I I love the choices in in songs in Christine, almost as much as I love the the score, you know, from Carpenter Mm -hmm. and Alan Howard. Like, it, it adds so, it's its own character. And just like it is in every Carpenter movie. Every Carpenter movie, the music is its own character. Yep. And I think Christine is a great example of that. The score uh, I'm talking about. Is, yeah. it's, it's its own character, and it's a great example of that. But I almost feel like it's not as recognized or appreciated as, you know, the Halloween, the Escape from New York, you know. Uh, you know, Assault on Precinct 13 is another one that I just think is one of the best theme songs ever. Mm-hmm. But you just don't hear people talk about it that much. Yeah, and I think a big reason for that is where the score actually sits in the movie. It's interesting that this movie doesn't open with a classic Carpenter score. Yeah. Um, It just, it's basically very simple titles, and then we go right to that factory, and you're not getting your traditional, like, Carpenter theme or motif that's going to start. It's really not until Christine becomes sentient that the Carpenter Horowitz score really kicks in, and I wonder if it's more of an issue of, like, the placement in the film than maybe why this one isn't regarded quite as well. Because I can tell you, as I was watching this movie, I opened up Spotify. I'm like, I need to find this soundtrack. Oh, dude, I would also recommend, if you don't have it already, uh, the Anthology album that okay. came out a couple years ago. Carpenter, mm-hmm. his son Cody, and his godson Daniel Davies re-recorded all of his classic themes uh, a couple years ago for one album. And Christine, mm-hmm. oh man, Christine sounds so great now. Yeah, it's going to be a must-listen to tonight. Well, that, and I also feel like a reason maybe the score isn't, I hate to use the word underappreciated, because, I mean, its fans do love it. Uh, but maybe not as recognized is because it is bunched in with 
I mean, so many great songs. I mean, Bad to the Bone. Mm-hmm. You know, you get Buddy Holly with Not Fade Away. Little Richard. I mean, yeah. you know. Richie I, Val- I, I think Richie Valens is in there. I Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's also films that, like, I don't, I don't think they're on the soundtrack. I, I mean, I, it's been a while since I, I have the soundtrack, but I don't know where it is. But, I, I mean, don't they have, like, uh, ABBA and stuff like that on there, too? A like, little bit. A little there's bit, some yeah. stuff that, like, there's so many, like, real songs. When I say real songs, you know, I, I don't mean the score. Like, mm-hmm. the actual songs in the film, that the score kind of, I feel like, does get lost in there sometimes. But it's great. And not only that, when they're used in the movie, there's usually, like, it's Christine sending a warning, like, basically a warning shot to whoever she's got her sights on at that moment. I think it's a really wonderful touch to the movie, and it adds to the creepiness of it overall, so... You know what I wonder, and this is kind of a uh, little side question. You know, I, I haven't read much about Stephen King's inspiration for Christine. I, I mean, the book, I, you know, I love it, but I, I don't know okay. how I got into it. But I, I'm pretty <laughs> sure it's cocaine. <laughs> right? Like that maximum overdrive. No, uh, but <laughs> oh my god, man. Uh, no, but James Dean's car was like rumored to be possessed. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know if you've read that whole like, you know like mythology thing but his car not. that he called he called his car little bastard and people said that it was possessed so mm-hmm. i wonder if that was kind of the jumping point for that it's but, possible uh, because stephen king like his writing is so even to this day like he has such a fetish for 1950s yeah. uh culture and for like greaser culture and that whole thing like he still writes his like younger characters to this day um like they're 1950s greasers to his as much as I love Stephen King, to his detriment sometimes. Oh, I mean, yeah, yeah. Sometimes they come back. It. I mean, so many of those things. It's like, cool, dude. You love pomade. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, back to cocaine. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, there's a script that came out a few years ago, and it was like one of the most this beloved scripts that was being passed around. It's called Maximum King. Have you read that, buddy, fam? I have not read this. It is a fictional. Uh, film it's, it, they'll never make it and i know why because i've read it many times it's basically a, the a biopic about stephen king making maximum overdrive jesus okay I've heard I, this. there is so much cocaine and emilio yeah. estevez being an idiot in the script that man it is is any of you listeners if you could find that script please read it but king does not shy away from that in his life oh, I know. He's so open about it what's um, funny is I have so many things that, like, I just shield my kids and friends and everything. Like, you know, like, I mean, I did drugs as a kid because, I mean, mm-hmm. kind of who who didn't? Except, you know, the, hey. the, the straight-edge kids. I was straight-edge straight kids, edge. actually. I was a straight-edge Exactly. You, you know, you had ethics. Which no, is, I just was boring, man. <laughs> I was just boring. No, but, like, I'm such a different person than I was as a mm-hmm. teenager, you know? And I, I try to, like, act like that wasn't a part of my life. But like mm-hmm. Stephen King, you were interviewed. He's like, "Man, I was on coke. It was, it was crazy." <laughs> I was like, what, dude? You're Stephen King. But I mean, that—that's probably why he does it. He is Stephen King. He can talk about whatever the hell he wants. Yeah. You know, he's well, he's always been super open about. All right, I know you need to get out of here in ten minutes. So yes. let's put a bow on our Christine talk. Where do you want to end with this? Oh boy, I think that Christine, in my opinion. And I know I've said that a million times because mostly I get tired of people arguing with me online. Uh, I think it's one of Carpenter's best films. I think it definitely sits in 
maybe not the top five, but maybe top ten for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's great. Uh, I think sometimes people forget that it's a Carpenter movie because it's so in tune with Stephen King, you know, mythology and past. But and the fact that Carpenter took it as a job and made it his own and made it one of the most exciting, uh, just exciting and not brutal in violence or visceral in a visceral way, but emotionally, it is one of Carpenter's best films when it comes to character development. I mean, that, the casting, Keith Gordon, like I said earlier, one of the most underrated actors around. I think Christine is a brilliant film. And if, if any of you listeners, if you guys haven't seen it, you're an alien. But if you haven't, go look it up. If I was, you haven't watched it in a while, revisit it. I was one of those aliens until about <laughs> 4 o'clock today. And I am so glad this won the poll. I love Prince of Darkness. I voted for They oh. Live. Um, but, I mean, really, we could not have gone wrong with any of the four choices. Uh, but I am actually really glad this won because this was like a wonderful movie to sit down and watch. It had all of the things I love about John Carpenter. But it also showed a whole new side of him that I wasn't aware of him as a director that you don't often get to see. There was this genuine warmth in the yeah. um, characters there that isn't often there. Well, uh, and have, I'm you really seen, uh, have you seen Starman? I have not seen Starman yet. Oh, my God. When can you watch Starman, Mike? I'll have to watch it over break. Please do. If you want a Carpenter film that has character development and Mm -hmm. sweetness, innocence, like John Carpenter making a film about an alien that wants to be human. Like, Mm -hmm. it is – it's not horror whatsoever. It is a brilliant drama that the warm parts of Christine that you love, you Mm -hmm. will – or in Starman. Then that's going to be probably the next Carpenter film I watch in the next week awesome. or so. So before we go, Jerry, did you have anything you wanted to announce or talk about? Like you had mentioned you had a few things that you were working on coming up. Is that for uh, public, is that for public consumption yet, or am I editing this? There's, okay, there's a big one that I can't speak on right now, but uh, if it happens, uh, I can die. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, I, I, there's a couple things I can really quickly. Uh, I am directing a segment of uh, Tales from the Grave, which nice. is this anthology produced by Dustin Ferguson. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's going to be this really cool uh, kind of Brian De Palma homage uh, mixed with witchcraft. It's, Very it's cool. Okay, so I'm in. much fun. I'm so excited to do it. And we got some really cool people involved. Uh, but yeah, that's that's it for now. That's very cool. I am excited to see how that comes out. I have nothing going on. So I just finished, almost finished school. So I'm very excited. I'm done my last ever class class. I have two nights of internship left and then I'm done and I'm, I'm very excited to be done this. Um, that's so that's great. what I have going on. Um, now it's like the job hunt season. Like we're living mm-hmm. off the last of my student loans at this point and mm-hmm. we just needed to get us through August. So um all right, to our listeners, we hope you guys enjoyed this. It's a little bit different from what we normally do, but we really didn't want to go a week without having an episode up, and we thought this is a really good good way to do it. And I could see us doing more stuff like this in the future, especially with the Patreon. <laughs> so right. we'll, we'll talk about that at some point. Um, so we'll be back next week with our Friday the 13th Part 7, A New Blood episode. And Jerry, who's guesting? Do you want guessing? to announce it? Okay, yeah, that's what yeah, I'm going to Okay, 
I don't know. We haven't discussed if we're going to do two mini episodes or one big one, but uh, one big and one mini, I think. One, okay, like one big one mini. For the mini, we are talking to William Butler, who is in Friday the Thirteenth Part Seven: The New Blood. He was actually the first person that Kane Hunter ever killed as Jason because they shot it out of you know out of sequence. Uh, really great staple in the horror genre. I mean, he did Not a Living Dead, the remake, Texas Chainsaw Three. Great director in his own right. We're going to be talking to him. And for the didn't, episode, didn't William say like I think when I was watching the Leatherface documentary, he said he's the only person to be killed by Freddy, Jason, and Leatherface on film. Yeah, yeah. Which How is... natural is that? Because he was in an episode of Freddy's Nightmares. Yeah, yeah. We have William Butler for the mini episode, and for the big episode, I could not be more excited about this. We have Tommy Hudson, who I mean, wrote Never Sleep Again, the book. Uh, he worked on the documentary. He's a great director, great author. And we have, I think you pronounce his name, Bracky? Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter Bracky. Or it could be Brake. I'm sorry, Peter, if I got that wrong. The author of Crystal Lake Fucking Memories, which is the definitive Friday the 13th book. This is, is the book be, we use for all our research. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It is going to be one of the most informative episodes that we've recorded or will ever record. I have a feeling mm-hmm. about that. So I'm so excited. Yeah, I'm looking forward to being like, and let me read from your book, Peter. Uh, so, um, but I'm really excited for that. After that, we have um, Brad McCarr coming up for Jason Takes Manhattan. Um, and I think we might have another director lined up for another interview. We'll know more about that very shortly. So we have some really cool things. Uh, and once we wrap up Friday the 13th, are we jumping into what, Blair Witch Project? Yes, we are. So That's... there are three three spooky ass movies. Uh, the first movie, the first Blair Witch, I have seen it only twice in my life because I watched it in '99 and it scared the living shit out of me. Yep. And I only watched it again two years ago because I finally got the ball yep. to watch it. So yeah. it's going to be fun revisiting. Yeah, I want to set up a screening for it in the woods near our house. Oh, wow. um, yeah, and what is really fun about that? anyone who knows the Bridgewater, Massachusetts area, I live smack dab in the Bridgewater Triangle where there have been like witch sightings. Um, There actually was like a mass murder near us in the 80s during the satanic panic. It was a ritual killing. Um, Bigfoot sightings, ghosts, uh, you name it and we have it. And I definitely want to watch the Blair Witch Project in October, wow. in the dark, in the woods, and then you know, I guess this show would be over because we. Yeah, that's about to say. Well, then, <laughs> nice knowing you. <laughs> so until next week, follow us on Pod and the uh, Pod and Pendulum over at Twitter. If you are on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your um, podcast from, leave us a rating. I can't stress enough; like that goes a huge way to people actually finding us. Um, every time we get a review, we see our numbers jump up for the next couple of days. So, and if you're enjoying the show, please, please, please consider leaving us a rating. Until next week, everyone have a great one. I am now going to go pack for my vacation. Jerry, you have a wonderful night, and it's 8.30. We're out on time. All right.